0: Uh, hi, Ben. Thank you so much for taking the time. So uh, I just wanted to uh, start off with, uh, so I mean, uh, you have so much experience. I think uh, you have over 25, 25 years, I think, entrepreneurship plus, uh, you know, investing uh, experience. So why did it, uh, why Why do you think it took you so long to start your own fund? Like-
1: That's a fair question. It's funny. A lot of my entrepreneurs were like, about time. But when I started out in 2007, effectively, I was brought in to build and run the equity practice for Venture Debt Shop. So in many ways, it acted like my own fund. I had the right to invest my own money. I pretty much was a team of one, but got to leverage the back office team as needed. So I really got to learn on somebody else's nickel. I got to leverage an institutional back office And I got to make a lot of great investments without flying solo. Now, after that, you know, I had about eight years of doing exclusively seed, and I had enough success where a couple, you know, about half a dozen venture firms approached me about crossing over to become a Series A partner. And I did that for two years and then later joined NEA, where I did even later stage rounds. So for me, it was a sort of a process of learning and growing. And, you know, if you think about it, if you think of seed as the gifted high school of investing, then series A might be, you know, the elite college of investing and later stage might be the PhD program of investing. So, you know, in a lot of ways, I think economically, I might've been better advantaged if I had struck out on my own earlier. Um, and certainly it always will bother me that Josh Koppelman announced first round capital about a week before I started. And if I'd done it on my own, maybe I could have beaten him to the punch and been the first institutional seed investor on the street. But all in all, looking back on it, the the process has been extremely useful, both in getting to know over 300 VCs from the outside and being a VC on the inside and thereby being able to really help my entrepreneurs with the realities of raising rounds and, and uh and you know, making introductions and helping them with term sheets, and and being able to be sort of the babble fish of venture capital, and letting them know what things really mean when they hear the various soft, buzzy no's of a venture that sound like interest. So I think it all ended up working out well. Uh, I have lost your audio. Oh, I do not. No, hear no, no. You I'm anymore. so sorry.
0: I was in mute activity. I I hope you can hear me. Oh, yeah. Uh, so
1: now I can. Yeah, hopefully you'll edit that out. Okay, uh, good. Yeah, We're back.
0: So uh, I before we move on, uh, before we proceed to more questions, I was just hoping if you could give a like a, a like a one minute uh, intro or a one minute intro on what is uh, what is seed, what is series A, series B, series C, maybe.
1: Yeah, fair. So look, a lot of people don't care what they call rounds. Um, they just care that it's the right size of dollar amount for their fund to invest in. And, and there's some reasonableness to that. But if you think about the way the world has evolved, as I've watched it, you know, starting out in seed when seed didn't really exist in 07, today I think there are sort of classic breakpoints. Pre seed is usually the round that is either associated with or immediately after the friends and family money. This is where you have some phenomenal idea you want to pursue and you scrape together your own money and you advance on credit cards and you ask your family members and then you go out and raise 250, 500, maybe even a million dollars. Today that's called pre-seed. When I started that was called seed. So now that pre-seed round, there's a whole group of players that will fund that and that gets you to sort of prototype, early customer, you know, tech proof, whatever. And then you go out and you raise a seed round. And a seed round could be anywhere from a million or two up to four, six, or even 10. And it's really the first tranche of capital, traditionally from institutional investors that are focused on seed, sometimes from venture firms, to get you to start scaling your business and, and, and to prove or disprove a thesis. Because once you prove that thesis, that's when you go out to raise the Series A. And the Series A these days are, you know, I wrote a story for TechCrunch about five, six years ago that seed was the new Series A. And that is so true today. It's just crazy. If you look at where Series A was 10 years ago, what you had was smart people with great ideas raising 3 to $5 million to start a company. Now that is 100% what Seed does. And when you take the round to the Series A investors, traditional tier one venture capital firms on Sand Hill Road or some in New York or a couple of others, um, you're going out with an existing amount of proof to justify what used to be called a Series B round but is now a Series A. Today, though, Series A is you're already effectively executing. Almost always you have real customers, real revenue, and it is the first of the fuel on the fire rounds. You know, in the old days, they used to say that if you get from zero to about a million of ARR in a year or less, you should be able to raise a Series A. I don't think that's true anymore. I think now the number is more like two or three um, because there's so many more companies being created and they're they're succeeding at, at just higher and higher levels that it doesn't matter... Who you compete with, you compete with everybody that raised money. So there are about 19,000 companies seeded a year, supposedly. Those are all your competitors. And if you get to a million of revenue in a year and someone else gets to two and a half, the person that got to two and a half is going to get all the attention. Series B rounds are the round that is the second fuel on the fire round and usually much bigger. You know, So if you want to ballpark it, precedes a quarter of a million to a million, seeds one to 10, series A is six to 30. Series B is 20 to 40. And Series C, there's no limit. You know, By Series C, you may be doing the round right before the IPO. Maybe the Series D is the round right before the IPO. Cs and Ds are growth rounds. They used to be dominated by a very small number of players like IVP, Institutional Venture Partners. But now there's a whole world of people in there from the T-Row prices to, to uh, the Tigers. And uh, it's becoming very competitive. There's money coming from everywhere. Every type of investor, every Part of the planet. It's a crazy and wild time. It's the best time for entrepreneurs that's ever existed. If you're an entrepreneur in the top two percent, uh, you're you, you know you can. You, this is dreamland. How great it is for you right now. Um,
0: so you you raised this uh, you raised this round uh, in June. I mean, sorry, I'm so sorry. You started this. You started your uh, Tenacity fund uh, in June twenty June of 2021. Um, just uh, I mean, just post the pandemic. I mean. Um, uh, so uh, did COVID have any, uh, did, did COVID have any uh, uh, effect on your thought process of starting this or was it way in the works for a long time?
1: Um, I had been pitching this idea for a little while, uh, in, in both to Scott Sandell who runs NEA and to NEA in general. Um, but, you know, I would say it didn't, it, maybe it gave me a little bit of trepidation. I was a bit worried about what it would be like to raise a fund in COVID or at the end of tail end of COVID. But realistically, it was beneficial in that people had become so accustomed to doing meetings over Zoom and Meet and uh, Teams, in exactly that order, by the way, uh, that they were very comfortable taking remote meetings. And so, you know, I had helped raise a venture fund once before enormous amount of time on the road. You fly into a city, you spend a night, you do meetings day and night. It's just like an IPO roadshow. And so it was much better to be the, be able to do these meetings out of this library I'm sitting in right now. So, you know, that was a net benefit. There were some firms that wanted to meet me. That's fine. I'm a big fan of, like, when I fund a company, I need to meet the person in person. I'm not a let me fund you over Zoom kind of guy. I'm happy to have the first meeting, maybe even the second or third meeting over Zoom. but eventually you know, I want to sit down together. Um, I think I did fund one company, a very small personal check during COVID without meeting the person face to face, but that was a total anomaly. So, you know, net net, you know, I think in the beginning it was a little scary, but it ended up going exceptionally well. You know, I thought it would take me a year or two to raise this fund and I thought COVID might make it take longer, but I raised half the fund in the first 25 days and we were oversubscribed within five months. So, you know, it was, um, For whatever reason, it worked out well. Now, in fairness, I've been doing this for 14 years, so I have a track record. So it wasn't like I was going out and pitching people to fund me purely on some concept. You know, it's always funny. Sometimes some of the professional LPs are like, well, you know, I'm a generalist. I fund technology. I fund technology in the seed category. Now, to me, that's a highly refined focus. But a lot of them are like, well, we really are looking for for, uh, GPs with a focus, you know, like... uh, I don't know, real estate tech or fintech or devices. And it's like, interesting. Well, my focus is that I want to find entrepreneurs that make me say, wow. And if I look at my history, I can't prove this because I don't pay them, but multiple people have told me that my my performance over the last 14 years is like top 1% according to Cambridge ratings. And I asked a guy from Cambridge if that was true, and he said, well, and this is a quote, I'd have to check the individual vintages, but that looks right to me. So my attitude is, you know what my focus is? Staying in the top 1%. And I think that would be good enough for anybody that wants to make money versus having some other reason for putting money into venture. Um, if you talk to LPs who have been around a long time, what they will tell you is focused funds tend to underperform. The only exception to that is uh, blockchain related or you know anything around crypto. Uh, But otherwise, for the most part, focused funds just don't do as well because you have to limit your aperture of what sort of opportunities you can look for. And if you find that entrepreneur that makes you say, wow, but they're not in a category you're covering, well, that gets it gets to be tricky. So anyway, I think having 14 years of reasonably good track record was very helpful to the process. And it's sort of like I'll I'll make this final comment on it. When I talk about investing, when people are trying to figure out, you know, what venture is all about, the way I think about it is the early there's a all investing is a blend of art and science. The earlier stage you go, pre-seed, incubation, seed, the more art. The later stage you go, the more science. If you're doing a series D round and you're not spending an enormous amount of time in that data room figuring out whether this makes sense you're making a mistake. And if you're spending too much time in the data room as a seed investor, I think you're also making a mistake. So my point is when you're funding a guy with a 14-year track record that sounds like it's in the top 1%, I think the science of it tells you whether you want to make that decision or not. And then you have to work on the art of whether you think that human being will be able to do a good job for you going forward, because obviously past is no guarantee of future, although it's a better predictor when it comes to individual investors than it is to things like mutual funds for many, many different reasons.
0: I have a couple of I have a couple of follow ups on that so uh, I think I, I think I read on your I think I read uh, on one of your tweets that you take about 1200 to 1400 uh, zoom meetings every month if i'm not wrong so uh,
1: no a year a year i can't take i don't think i could physically take 1000 zoom meetings a, a month absolutely. that would be pretty cool but i think i will be working 19 and a half hour days and taking 4 minute meetings oh, oh, oh,
0: i'm so sorry i think uh, yeah i'm so sorry so um, uh, how has that been, like, I mean, compared to, uh, like, you know, like, the, how effective has that been? Uh, has it been really, uh, so I think you also, uh, I think, commented that you only do seven deals a year or something like that. So, uh, has that really impacted yeah. your deal flow? Or-
1: yeah, it's been great. I mean, you know, the thing is, the Zoom meetings, you know, I, the, the comment you're quoting or, or that you're, you're referencing is that I have often said that I used to see about a thousand pitches a year. And now with Zoom, I see 1,400 to 2,000. Now that includes person-to-person meetings. That includes one hour with an entrepreneur. But that also includes like, you know, demo days and one-minute pitches and four-minute pitches and 15-minute pitches and everything else. Like I run a site, pitch-ben.com, which is currently having to be updated. we got some issues uh, where people can do a one-minute video pitch. And I promise them a one-minute video response. Um, It took about 300 pitches before I found somebody that I ended up funding on pitch bencom but I did find somebody that I funded there. So I'm a believer that quantity leads to quality. And so I am perfectly happy to hear a larger number of pitches. The reality is I only do seven to 10 deals a year historically. And so the vast majority of those thousand to 2000 pitches are going to be a pass. I try to pass in the meeting because I don't think it's a benefit to entrepreneurs to waste their time following up with somebody that can't fund them. And if I have honest feedback to give, I will give it because I was a founder for a long time and it was useful to me to get honest feedback, even if it was hard to hear. So I think Zoom's made it awesome. I mean, I see pitches from everywhere on the planet. You know, I judge startup competitions all over the world. But then again, like two weeks ago, I had Um, The Swiss government brought over what they call the Swiss National Startup Team, all their best founders, and I had them over to my office and we went through their pitches in person. Um, You know, Pitch Bend gets stuff from like, I think I've got every part of Africa at this and all types of Baltic regions. It's crazy. It's great. The reach is awesome. So I think it's been nice to be able to take those first meetings on Zoom, but I would generally pretty quickly if it's like uh, one of the companies I funded recently was L.A.-based. And we were about halfway through an hour meeting, and I was like, Wow, I really I think what you're doing here is very exciting. You know, where are you based? Oh, we're based in LA. I'm like, well, um, maybe I could come down and visit. And he said, Oh no, I'll come to San Francisco and I'll come tomorrow. And I was I was very impressed with his uh responsiveness. Anyway, he came out and we spent a couple hours together, and, and then I did a bunch of diligence and dug in the data room and spent more time with him, and we ended up investing in that company. But you know, actually having a face-to-face meeting before making a commitment to put in what was in that case $2 million, sort of I'm a 2 to $3 million check writer, uh, is important to me. And I'm not saying I'll never do a deal without meeting the people, but it just seems pretty unlikely.
0: Um, also, I, uh, I want to go back to the fund a little bit. Um, so um, you started this fund in 2021. I'm sorry to you know keep repeating that. Uh, but also, uh, I also, I mean, um, there's a lot of money being poured uh, in tech right now. I think uh, if I if I uh, if I recall correctly, I think uh, in 2020 and 2021, I think there was more money poured uh, into, uh, I mean, in the VC uh, by VC uh, firms, uh, more than the, I mean, more than how it was uh, poured in the during the peak of the dot com bubble. Um, so uh, how do you look at the? Uh, I'm not sure if I if I phrase it correctly, but uh, I, I hope you got it. Uh, but uh, uh, yeah, uh, how do
1: you begin? I think about that a lot. You know, it has. There's a lot of things to unpack in that that sort of piece of data. Um, one is my fund went so quickly. You know, it made me feel good, but I also was like, well, you know, there's so much money chasing venture. Maybe it's just, you know, the market. I'm just riding an upcycle. And then I met with a buddy of mine who spun out of another venture firm like a year and a half ago, and he's only 25 percent. Uh, done with raising his funds so I was like oh well I guess it isn't only the market but I certainly think the market made it easier to raise so many people want into this asset class there's a lot of money available to deploy now then the next part of that data is that there is a lot of money out there in venture being deployed and that you know always makes me worry about you know what rounds will look like etc and it was interesting you know when I went out to raise I didn't I wasn't primarily worried about Zoom. I was primarily worried about how crowded the space was and would that cause a challenge? And I was talking to a buddy of mine who spun out of a venture firm like probably 10 years ago and he started a seed fund. And I was you know, asking him for advice and his experiences. And he said, and I said, it feels crowded. He's like, oh, not at all, Ben, your timing's perfect. I'm like, what do you mean? It feels like there's a lot of folks out there. He said, yeah, there's a lot of pre-seed guys. But there are so few tier one seed investors that you're going to get deal flow from all of those pre-seed guys. And that made I I thought about it a lot. And I realized, you know what? You're right. In the last six and a half years as a VC, we've kept track of which seed investors we want to stay in touch with. And that list is pretty short and it hasn't changed much in a long, long time. So it does feel like there's now in fairness, you know, you're seeing funds like Greylock and Sequoia, you know, officially raise significant amounts of money to come into seed. Um, And I have friends at both places, and I've talked to them about, hey, maybe there's deals we can do together, and they seem totally open-minded to that. And we did just win a deal away from Sequoia. So you know, there's reasons why if you're an entrepreneur and you're doing a seed round, there's a lot of reasons you'd prefer not to have a venture firm do that seed round. You'd rather have... I mean, I'm a venture firm, but I'm a seed venture firm. I'm everything before the Series A. When you take money from a Series A investor, there's a lot of, I don't know... If sans or buts, then go with it. I mean, they're probably buying their ownership then, so they're not going to be, you know, that focused on bidding on the A. And if they don't bid on the A, then other people will be worried and you have signal risk and on and on and on. So, you know, I think there's a lot of reason why seed folks should do seed and venture folks should do Series A and beyond. But um, smart entrepreneurs understand that. And that's why, you know, a tier one seed fund can compete with a tier one venture firm and win a deal. You know, which is which is great. Our deal flow has been exceptional. In fact, we're going to have to increase the size of the fund for two reasons. One, I added a partner, and he already landed his first deal—the deal we went away from Sequoia. And two, you know, we've already deployed thirty percent of the fund, and we're only five months in. And my goal was for this fund to last three years. So if we don't increase the size of the fund, we're going to run out of money quicker than I wanted. Which means I'm going to have to be back fundraising again, which you know isn't my main desire. You know, that's not what I'm here for. I need to fundraise, but I need to fundraise so I can have the capital to fund the great entrepreneurs I'm finding. And the entrepreneur quality is exceptional. You know, I predicted two years ago that, you know, we all got together and did our little predictions for what would happen post-COVID. And, you know, people would have little silly predictions like no one will ever shake hands again. Well, yeah, good luck. That didn't work. Or, you know, more material predictions in terms of the tech pull forward or you know, how telecommuting would work. And anyway, my number one prediction was that we would see an explosion of entrepreneurship because of COVID. Because now that everybody's working from home, they have unlimited freedom to work on their side hustles and everything else. However, I didn't understand how high quality it would be. I thought it would be high quantity, but a lot of micro entrepreneurship. But what I didn't think through was, as more and more senior people have seen the velocity and size of IPOs and quality tech startups raising tremendous rounds. They've realized, wow, you know, I could do that. And often these are super, super senior people. I am really impressed with the quality of founders that we are getting to fund right now. I think it's better than it's ever been, and I think COVID had a lot to do with that.
0: Um, I want to go back to the uh, I want to go back to the previous comment again, um, just to dig a little bit deeper in the sense that. Uh, um, during the uh, during the dot com boom obviously internet uh, the internet was was the main factor was the main driver of that of that funding um, do you see uh do you see uh i mean do you think this level of funding is justified in 2021 based on like you know crypto nfts uh on blockchain technology etc um do you, i mean um, i mean do you think it's like kind of justified or uh, how do you look at the space per se
1: well, I mean, you can't, I, I don't think you can say it's justified or not on a macro basis. It's on a deal by deal basis. So, as an example, I made, uh, I have about, if you go to the Tenacity Venture Capital LinkedIn page, there's like 24 video testimonials from my entrepreneurs, you know, as to why other entrepreneurs should take my money. And one of them is a woman who started a company called Block Cypher. And I mentioned this because I was listening to her video and it says, you know, in, when Ben invested in my blockchain company in 2014 and I was like wow I had no uh, it was that long ago I had you know I know I've been looking at the stuff for a long time but I didn't realize I'd put money to work in a blockchain play in 2014 I would have guessed 2018 anyway so I've been looking at the space for a long time I have an investment in a company called Genies which is really seems to be leading the pack on the NFT side for sports and celebrity and so you know, crypto has been exploding. It's, as I said earlier, it's the only focused fund category that's done well to a lot of people. You know, they look at DeFi and Web3 or whatever other buzzword you want to throw at it. And they think of it as the next Internet. You know, like this is going to be as big as the Internet that I don't agree with. You know, like I think mobile was the first time that I saw something. Where I thought, wow, you know, look, I started a web business in 93. Berners-Lee created WWW, and I said to myself, oh, my God, this is going to be the biggest thing that's ever happened in my lifetime. And so I had to get involved. The next time I felt that was when the iPhone became a product people could buy. Like, oh, my God, this is going to change the way everybody navigates the information available to them and what we currently call the web. And I think that, you know, DeFi will create an enormous amount of value, particularly in fintech. Um, And NFTs will be quite interesting, But it's a subset of, you know, the web changed everything for everybody. DeFi, in my opinion, is not going to do that. NFTs are not going to do that. You know, think back to all the buzz around ICOs. I used to get pitched ICOs all the time. And it's funny because everybody that pitched me an ICO would say, hey, Ben, you know, about 70% of these ICOs are scams, but we're not. And I'm like, well, I've met 100 of you and you're all telling me you're not scams. So 70 of you are lying. I don't know which ones. And I never did a single ICO. I considered taking a six month leave of absence to doing my own ICO just to learn all the inner workings. I decided against that. But my issue was, you know, they were just future penny stocks. You know, people get all excited on the issuance and then they never trade. You know, they trade by appointment, as they used to say. And that seems to have been what's happened. So I'm not saying that NFTs are the same and I'm not saying DeFi is the same. I'm just saying that sort of the level of hype and excitement on some of these categories is like, yeah, I know you all want to be there at the birth of the web, like I was fortunate enough to be, but you weren't. And saying that this is the birth of the next web isn't going to make it so. There will be great, enormous companies created, there'll be tremendous value created, but it is not going to change everything for everybody. It's going to change many things for many people. And here's the other thing. Let's talk about blockchain, right? It is still slow and expensive compared to other things. When people tell me, oh, we're going to blah, 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 and it'll be on the ledger. And I'm like, why? Well, you know, we just think blockchain is the wave of the future. I'm like, it's slower and more expensive. So why does, and why do your users care? Are your users getting more value because it's distributed? Because it doesn't, you know, if you're running a proprietary art fractional sales site, you know, your your user's buying a slice of a Van Gogh or a Picasso or a Warhol or whatever. Like, do they care if it's on the chain or in an Oracle database? What they care about is that they know they own something and they can secure it and they can track it over time. Like, you know, it, it's sort of like, you know, you look at the evolution of every entrepreneur that's ever pitched. For a while, it was all like, we have an algorithm. Oh, okay, great. Then it was like, we have AI. And it was like, we have ML. Now it's like, we're on the blockchain. It's like, yeah, okay, thanks. I'm glad you stamped that onto your deck like everybody else. but Tell me why it matters. And by the way, most people, it's funny, just quickly, I remember somebody went and said, oh, blah, 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 proprietary algorithm. I'm like, okay, explain the algorithm to me. And they explained it to me. I was like, you know, I'm not exactly sure what the definition of an algorithm is in a book, but what it is not is if X, then Y. You've just explained a quote-unquote algorithm to me that my 12-year-old could write. If you think that's a proprietary thing, then I think you should go back to school and understand the difference between math and geometry and trigonometry, because one plus one equals two is not an algorithm that I'm willing to bet money on. So anyway, these days, I think half the time people are just, you know, like slathering some blockchain on there, slathering some NFT on there, like, oh, let's polish it up. It's like an episode of Silicon Valley. You remember that one where the guy's like, oh, oh this has got robotic process automation or whatever. He's like, oh, this has AI. I got to bet on this. You know, some random thing, computer vision. Like that was the buzz at the time. So he wanted to throw some of that. I remember, I won't name him because this comment was a little odd, but I really love him. Great seed investor. And I brought him this company in the clean tech era. And he said, Well, I don't know about this company, but if you could, if this thing's going to have some of that magic clean tech pixie dust on it, then maybe that's enough. But guess what? Magic clean tech pixie dust was not enough. So, you know, you got to have a smart business first and foremost. And if you do, and it can be huge, and you're, Phenomenal, then that's what's interesting me. And if it's an NFT business, great, but it's about the founder. It's about the idea. It's about the size of opportunity.
0: Um, I wanted to ask you about since you spoke, uh, since you're taking a lot of meetings via Zoom, uh, just to switch topics a little bit, uh, since you're taking a, a lot of meetings, I mean, uh, pitches via uh, Zoom and you know virtually, I was wondering if uh, your deal flow has changed uh, with respect to the countries that you're uh, with, with, respect to the places that you're funding and countries that you're funding, Uh, I mean, I don't know previously what kind of, I mean, I don't know if you were exclusively funding in the U.S. earlier uh, with your work in NEA, etc. But, uh, I I mean, um, currently, uh, do you see yourself funding mostly in the U.S. or has that changed to maybe uh, some Asian countries or maybe also Europe and Asia?
1: I mean, I'm open-minded to funding phenomenal entrepreneurs anywhere in the world. Realistically, about 90% of what I do or more is in the U.S. and about 90% of that's in Silicon Valley. Just the way of the world since I'm here and that's this is, and the best people in the world. By the way, it's fascinating. If you were to look at my founder pool, it is the most diverse array of people in the world, at least from my point of view. You know, a lot of women, a lot of people from just like every possible country, you know, it's like one of my back when I at the NEA days, we were really focused on, you know, trying to make sure to um, give everybody fair access and, uh, you know, really had a, a strong diversity initiative. And my EA said to me, hey, tell me about the diversity of your founders that you have backed in the past. It's just like, like how many African-Americans you And I It's like, you know, I have no clue. I've never kept a track. But then I went and I thought about it a lot. And I looked at the people I invested in. And I said, OK, well, I guess if I think about it that way, I've got you know, like two African-American founders, but I've also got like three First Nations founders, people from like, you know, the local tribe of country X. And then I've got probably 15 to 20% of my founders are women. And, you know, I've got a you know, the, the, the tiniest population of human beings I have funded are white males. Now, I'm not opposed to white males, although I think like I think of myself as a tan male. Uh, But I think, you know, it's probably a lot easier for white males to be lazy and I don't want lazy in my portfolio. So, you know, I've got now in terms of while I fund international founders that have come to the United States, often first generation, um, I have investments. I've got a company in India. I've got a company in Asia. I've got a company in two companies in the UK, I've got uh, one in France. So, you know, I've always been willing to look anywhere, but I've got to find that wow. And so, you know, for about two years bef- before COVID, I was uh, spending a lot of time going around Europe. That was a focus for me. And I'm, on, I'm now on the technology advisory board of the World Bank of Scotland, now known as NatWest. So I'm in the UK about four times a year. So like I just yesterday, issued a term sheet to a UK-based founder. And uh, after this um, call, I have a final diligence call with another UK-based founder uh, and a bunch of references this week to determine if that's a company I'm going to fund. So I'm open-minded. Um, I think I'm more open-minded than I was before, which is sort of to the heart of your question. You know, the way that you, you should think about international companies for US VCs is that the farther you are away from the VC, the higher the bar goes for them to make a decision to fund you. Now historically, that, I'll give you an example. Um, I was working in a fund and we saw a very exciting company out of Africa in the fintech space. And the partner that was on the deal got really excited about it. And I said, look, I get why you're excited. This is a really neat company. But let me just check one thing. And I was like, okay, there is one flight a week that will get you there in 17 and a half hours every other flight, you have to spend a night. So if you do this investment, that's one week, a quarter, four weeks a year that you're giving to this investment versus, say, four days for something local. I don't think that's a reason to do or not do the investment. but You have to think it through, right? Like it's a pretty material use of your time and VCs really only have their time and their money. So what I've learned now, though, is my comfort level of Zoom is high enough where while, yes, I want to meet you, I need to fly over there and meet you before I find you. If two of our board meetings happen on Zoom, one of them happens in your country and one of them happens in my country, that's fine. And so all of a sudden, the bar comes down. It's still higher. It's higher because I don't necessarily have the network there to help you in the ways I'd like and many other reasons, like I don't know the local regulations. And you know there's many, many reasons. But it is easier to fund an international company today than it was pre-COVID. And that is definitely because of the comfort with, you know, the wonder of finally having the Jetsons radio, TV, telephone and being able to see each other's face while we talk.
0: Um, I want to um, just on a general um, on a general topic of Silicon Valley. Uh, I think that there has been a lot of uh, talk about, you know, people leaving the, uh, leaving the valley. I hope you can hear me. I don't know. Uh, right. OK, see you guys. So uh, I was just wondering, uh, do you I mean, are you seeing this on the ground like uh, because um, I mean,
1: yeah, Yeah, big time. I mean, there's look, people can say whatever they want. They can say standard of living, homelessness, all this the rest of it. It's all B.S. People move out of here because the taxes suck. People move out of California because it is the most expensive tax rate in the country and so they and it's no coincidence people can pretend whatever they want if you move from california to texas right to austin or to florida to miami you really think that you move there because purely because you get a nicer home no no everything's happening here but people are just sick of constantly being battered with more and more taxes and you know at this point more of the money earned by people in California goes to taxes, then it goes in their pocket. We're over 50 percent. And eventually that straw in the back is just too much. So if people are approaching liquidity, you know, people I know it's funny, but my founders, I will reach out to founders. I haven't talked to in a while from my old days as a seed investor. And I'll be like, oh, I didn't tell you. I moved to Austin, Miami, Deer Valley, right? Like there's a massive exodus. And it will continue. Now, the other thing is it's not just taxes. Clearly, there's other reasons. But the reason it's now viable because the taxes have sucked for a long time is that they've become so comfortable with running their company remotely. You know, before they thought they had to be in their office to make sure everybody was doing their job. And now they're like, wait a minute, I just spent two years managing my entire company on this little screen and it worked. I guess I don't have to be in Silicon Valley. I guess I can move. Boom you know? And the same thing is happening in other places as well, uh, but to a lesser extent. So, and you do look at, you know, like when, when Austin police, uh, but a friend of ours, uh, a couple moved away to Austin, she got pulled over for some minor infringement, whatever, didn't signal. And uh, he saw our driver's license and, she's, and he was like, Oh, I just hope you Californians don't bring your votes. And she was like, You know, but it's funny that like the local policeman has an opinion in Austin about somebody coming from California because so many people from California are showing up on his door. It's like when my family moved to Tokyo, the Japanese did not love that IBM brought all these people in because all these people took up more real estate. You know, it took four typical Japanese homes to make one typical American home. And so it was crushing to the real estate and to the locals. So anyway... It's, um, yeah, a lot of people are moving, particularly when they've, you know, learned that they can manage their company remotely and learn that they can hire remotely. And look, this is the worst hiring environment that's ever existed since men and women moved out of caves and hired people to do things for them. You know, and so one of the few advantages founders have is to be able to allow remote work. And when a big company insists on you being in your desk and the founder says, hey, you can live wherever you want, that can be compelling. But it reiterates and reinforces the sort of remote work model and the ability to manage from anywhere. And I think over time, it'll have some consequences. And I do think there's enormously important reasons to have people together. But for right now, a lot of people got really excited. And there's plenty of people that like when their companies shifted to remote, went ahead and moved home or moved somewhere cool that they thought would be fun, like Hawaii. And now that their companies are changing, all of a sudden they have to make decisions as to whether they come back or not. But in the meantime, they were like, Think about it. You know, like, hey, I got to spend an unknown period of time working for my house. Do I want to work for my house here in California? Do I want to work for my house that I could rent in Hawaii? I don't know. Sounds a little more fun to me if I'm a young person to be in Hawaii. By the way, I think it was probably even harder for New Yorkers because New York apartments are small. You know, like if you're trapped, I have a nice house. I'm, I'm fine. I have a yard. I have a pool. I can do what I need to do. If you're in a New York apartment that's 600 square feet and you're indoors, 7 by 24. Oh, man, that's got to suck. So, you know, I think every climate and community has different realities. But yes, a lot of people are leaving. And I think all the debate's BS. I think it's, it's purely for money and for whatever. And the politicians don't want to admit that because obviously they want to jack up your taxes yet again, which, I, you know, don't even get me started there. You know, I'm fiscally conservative and socially liberal. I, I'd like to see us take care of people that don't have what they need within reason. But man, this is just like we're at a place where it doesn't matter if there's reason. It's just let's just fix it all. Let's give every person anyway, whatever. Sorry, don't want to drift off to a political rant. Uh, um,
0: I, I just want to follow. Up. I just want to follow up on this one uh, quickly. Uh, is uh, I mean, I, I mean, you you knew all this, but also you still decided to, you know. I think if I'm not wrong, your your firm is based out of uh, uh, Silicon Valley as well. Um, I mean, also, yeah, I'm still not, here. not only you, but also in general, uh, even with all, even with all this information, uh, people. Uh, a lot, I think a lot of people are still sticking to uh, uh, the
1: valley. Uh, so, Absolutely. What about it's still an amazing... Look, Silicon Valley is like Florence during the Renaissance. The best and brightest flock here to be around each other. And that will continue. And people will pay... A- Look, you do get what you pay for. We moved out of New York City to Incline Village, Nevada, the tax-free environment, but we weren't happy with the schools, so we moved to Silicon Valley for multiple reasons. And, you know, do I believe that all my dollars are spent effectively? Absolutely not. But do I believe that there's just a ridiculously awesome place to live in so many ways from the depth of entrepreneurship? You know, one of the things that's so wonderful about this community is that, you know, each community has its own anchoring industries. And Silicon Valley, the anchoring industry is entrepreneurship and everybody wants to support it. You know, real estate people might take partial payment in in rent in that stock and lawyers will defer fees until around and like on and on and on. Everybody wants a piece of the entrepreneur game and wants to see the entrepreneurs win and to win alongside of them. And so that reality does not exist anywhere else. It doesn't matter where you go in the world that's trying to build their version of Silicon Valley. The laws aren't the same. The infrastructure is not the same. The people aren't the same. The people don't have decades of watching entrepreneurial wealth being created and wanting to be part of it and taking part, right? It is a very, it is an absolutely unique place and it will stay that way. Now other places will spring up and we'll have great things happen. You know, I can't tell yet about Miami. I hear from founders that have moved there that it's like 90% hype, but you know, 10% is a good place to start. You know, Austin's got a lot going on. I have founders that have started their businesses in Austin. Um, you know, I've got Canada's got a phenomenal um, couple of schools that do a great job of turning out high quality engineers that people want to hire, and so and they have a, a really advantaged tax and uh, and hiring structure to make it easier for companies and let them save. So anyway, things will happen in lots of places, but no people, plenty of people are coming in. I do think though that by the numbers, more people are leaving California than are entering it. So I think we have tipped over to the point where. They stopped dropping straws on the camel's back and they started dropping bricks. And eventually a lot of camels decided to get the heck out of California. Um, But plenty more camels will come in, just not as many as have left. And net net, you know, I would argue that, you know, disadvantaging the best and brightest from coming here is a foolish, short sighted mistake that uh, has no place in in the ethos of what Silicon Valley and California is. But, you know. Politicians don't think long term. They think about what they need to do to get elected in the next cycle, and they don't, you know, whatever makes their constituency happy.
0: Um, I want to come back to the. I want to come back to your firm. Uh, so, uh, what, uh, what would be like success? I mean, what would be success? Uh, what would be the de- definition of success for your firm um,
1: if you had to like what? What would success look like? Now? Sure. Well, I mean. You never know what will happen. So this is not a future prediction. But, you know, I'd really want to make sure I get at least a 10x fund out of my first fund. Um, I can't control that. I can do my best. I can fund the best founders. and But, you know, you never know. Uh, if I look at my history, I'm really sorry. Um, so
0: uh, so uh, generally, people say that uh, 90% of all startups fail.
1: Uh, Is it also true of venture funds as well? Do 90% of them fail? Well, okay, so let's start with the 90% of all startups fail. My understanding is that in venture, the mortality rate's about 40%. My own history over the last 14 years runs between 25, between a quarter and a third of my companies lose me money. Now, lose me money could be all my money or 90 cents on the dollar comes back and I lose a dime, but that's the number, you know, Uh, so... It isn't as bad as that for me. But then again, I'm not focusing on all 19,000 startups a year, right? Like you do have to include in startups every hot dog stand and random dumb idea that scrapes together a couple of nickels and then lasts a week or two and then folds up shop. So now as to venture firms, probably not. I haven't looked at the failure data. Um, You know, one of the things about venture firms is that you're raising money with a intent to deploy it typically over, let's call it a three-year period, but the fund itself lasts for 10 to 12 years. So if you were miserable, if you were the worst investor that has ever walked the earth and you raised a fund, uh, let's just make up a number, $100 million fund, and you lost it all, you'd still last 10 years losing it all because you'd get your fees, Now, fees are, it's funny, people argue about fees a lot, but fees are really just an advance on your future success. As an example, so people pay me fees every year. I defer them. I'm not taking any fees for the first three and a half years, by the way. But, you know, in theory, those are accruing. And I have to give all that fee money back before I get carried. So the only way a VC gets to keep fees is if they lose money for their LPs. Otherwise, they're returning all those fees before they get carried. So with success, you get carry. Carry is where you can make material amounts of capital. So uh, I think the failure rate's lower. The the question that would probably be more interesting to figure out is what percentage of fund one funds succeed in raising fund two or even more so fund three. There's an old saying. Fund one is about good looks like, oh, yeah, this guy looks interesting. His track record is good. He's got a good focus. Let's fund him. Fund two is about, looks good so far. Hey, he's not had any liquidity yet. It's been way too early, but, you know, nice markups, good company. We like the way it sounds. We'll go ahead and put some money in for the second fund. Fund three, show me the money. Because fund three, you should be, let's say you do three years per fund, so that's six years, and then, you know, now you're raising fund three five years in. By then, you should have had some uh, some strong, really strong data. Hopefully, some liquidity, although, to be honest, the most exciting companies take a much longer time than five years to exit. Usually the ones that, don't, that do okay exit earlier. I'm, I'm not looking for early exits. I'd rather stick it out for 10 years and make 100x than be, be in for five years and make 5x. I mean, it's just not the game that I'm playing. So, you know, now in fairness, when I say I'd like to deliver 10x fund or better, The first fund equivalent I did, the first three year period of investing was a 13.6x realized fund. So a little shy of 14, so I'd actually like to do better than 10. Um, But uh, what when I say that, you know, there's a common misconception like people think about venture investing. I think it's about the 10x investment. It is absolutely not about the 10x investment. It's about I'm certainly excited about the idea of a 10x fund. And again, not a forward looking. I mean, it's a forward looking statement, but I could also lose all the money. Right. Like every investment I've ever made, one side of it is I can make a lot. and The other side of it is I could lose all my money. So you can never make an investment in a company that you think could be a 10x return as a company, because as you said, a lot of these companies don't make it. And so I need to believe that any company I invest in has the opportunity to deliver 40 to 100x back if it works, because I need to believe that every investment I make has the chance to return the entire fund more than one time over. Um, And I think that's the way any tier one high quality investor thinks because they want to do a tremendous job for their LPs. And you can only do so many deals. And when you can only do so many deals, you have to be super, super careful about which ones you choose. It's not like there's a limit on choice. I mean, it is crazy how much deal flow we get. We just get to see so many things. I could deploy the entire fund in a week if I said yes to everybody that walked through the door, but I'm clearly not going to do that. That's not my job.
0: Uh, I want to close with a couple of questions. So uh, I, I just want to talk about that deep flow again. Um, uh, you know, the the story of the struggle of, of the startup founder is pretty famous. I mean, uh, working in isolation and the, and the hard work that needs to be put in. Uh, do you think it's gotten a lot easier, uh, at least, uh, you know, in 2021, with all the venture money coming in? Uh, do you think the struggle is, uh, I mean, do you think it's a bit easier than how it was before? Or?
1: I don't think the struggle is easier. I think fundraising is easier for the best. Now, the problem with that, so I'm going to bifurcate that into the two points. One, struggle not being easier, and two, the fundraising. The fundraising is a tale of two cities. If you're one of the top 2% of founders with one of the top 2% businesses, oh, man, it's just phenomenal what you can do right now when it comes to fundraising. A lot of people want to be in that game. But if you're not, it's a long, hard road. You know, it's got to be really painful to be an entrepreneur that struggled to raise for six months when you see these rounds going off, you know, like lightning in a bottle. Um, But I don't think that that on its own has made it easier. It has given people more capital. But the problem is when you have more capital, you ramp your burn and then your responsibilities increase. You know, it is incredibly hard to be an entrepreneur. It's It's the hardest job in the world if you're not a first responder. You wake up every morning and the responsibility for everybody that works on your team is on your back and things go wrong constantly, and you have nobody to talk to, and it's very lonely, and all of that. It's just hard, hard, hard. And if you got into being an entrepreneur with the belief you could establish it with work-life balance, you've harshly woken up to realize that that was a dream that will never be achieved. So, you know, it's like, there's an old saying I love, work, family, golf, choose any two. Work, family, any significant passion, choose any two. Well, guess what? When you're an entrepreneur, you might have to choose just one. So it's hard, really, really hard. And having more money is, so It's I do CrossFit. I used to do it religiously, and then I stopped for a couple of years, now I'm back. And one of my favorite phrases from my coach is, it doesn't get easier, you just get better, right? Over time, you can lift more weight, you can push through, but it's not easier because you increase the amount of weight, right? If you used to be able to deadlift 235, and now you can deadlift 335, it's no easier on you. Because you're not going backwards to lift a lighter weight, but you get better. Your form gets better, your tolerance gets better, your understanding of your abilities and yourself gets better. Same thing with entrepreneurship. It doesn't get easier, but you do get better. You learn more, you push through and you, you know, like there's a reason I named this fun Tenacity. Tenacity to me is the only secret to entrepreneurial success. Brilliance is assumed or I wouldn't have funded you, or great ideas assumed or I wouldn't have funded you. So the question is, are you gonna be able to make it through some incredibly hard times? And, you know, I I think there's like I encourage my entrepreneurs to find other CEOs to get to know, to join groups like YEO or YPO, like to have other folks. Like, I want to be a guy as an ex-entrepreneur myself who ran companies for 25 years and took a company public and was a CEO of a public company and all of that, who they can call on and ask hard questions of because I've probably lived through that stuff. And uh, if I can be that person for them, then that's gratifying to me. You know, look... I'll go back to a point I made. I know that the other side of any investment win that I hope for is that I could lose all my money. And that is part of the reality of being a a venture investor, a seed investor. And that's an acceptable reality. I signed up for that. So, you know, I always want to make sure my entrepreneurs know to the extent they can really internalize the words that that risk is there all the time. I am more than happy, but the good stuff will take care of itself. Let's talk about the bad stuff. Come to me when it's hard. Let me try and help. The more time you give me, the better. Don't be worried that something you're grappling with could kill your business and therefore lose me all my money. I get that that can happen and will happen to everybody at some point. Not that they'll lose all my money, but they'll be at that risk. If you're an entrepreneur, you're going to stare into the valley of death. And I want to be able to help you if I can. So don't be afraid of coming to me to talk to me about the thing that, if it goes wrong, could kill your company. I know those things exist. They exist for all of us, but let's try and figure out if we can avoid them. Let's figure out if we can dodge the bullet. If we can't, I mean, I won't be happy. OK, I'll tell you one. I always like stories because they're sort of ultimate truth. Here's a quick story. I'm with a buddy of mine, one of my entrepreneurs, and we're talking to this guy who wants to understand how venture works and he's an LP. And, you know, uh, he's, I'm telling him stories. And I'm telling them a story about how one of my companies exited for, I made 30 times my money on my first investment and how that was four years ago and I was still livid because they should have been able to keep going, but their entrepreneurial board was weak and they forced them to sell. And I was like, they finally broke through after years and years of work and they forced them to sell. We were on first base and they wouldn't make, you know, give them the chance to round home. It was infuriating to me. And anyway, the entrepreneur turns to to the LP and he's like, you know, I don't think I've ever met anybody that can complain about making money the way Ben does. It's like he made 30 times his money and he's whining about it like a baby. And I I turned to him and I was like, you know, Zach, now you know who it is. Zach, that might be fair, but let me ask you a question. How often did I bring it up when you lost all my money? And he said, you know what? You're right. You never said a word. He turned to the LP and he said, you know what? And these were his words, not mine. So it's a little crass. He said, I pissed away 100% of Ben's money over six years, lost every penny and gave him back nothing. And he never said a word about it. So I'm not worried about the downside. I'm not worried about protecting the downside. I don't want to have it happen. I'll do whatever I can to keep it from happening. But I want to protect the upside. Like I want companies that can be future public companies, not companies that get forced to sell for a couple hundred million dollars along the way and then think, oh, that's good enough. Uh, So, you know, it's it's a it's a hard, hard journey. And when it works out perfectly, it's phenomenal and it doesn't work out. It actually works out better for the entrepreneurs than they think it will be because they've learned so much along the way. They probably got a job that they wouldn't have been able to get before they became an entrepreneur. But net net, it's painful. And, you know, you want to help them with that process, even if it's the painful last rights process. So it is what it is. That's not getting any easier, no matter how many Zoom meetings you have.
0: Okay. Uh, I want to close with a couple of quick questions. Um, is there a VC you admire?
1: Oh, sure. I mean, Scott Sandell, who runs NEA, is one of the best investors that's ever lived in venture. I think he has a world record for the most uh, New York Stock Exchange IPOs. I remember we were at a... I, uh, I was with the New York Stock Exchange guys. And they're like, yeah, we keep a book. He's like top. <laughs> and Scott's just great. He's an honorable, honest, hardworking, super smart person that grabs opportunities and stays with them and, and just... He's a great human being. Forrest Basket, also somebody I feel really strongly about. Also, they were the two people that recruited me into NEA and just awesome people to work with and people I learned from. Um, but there's many. I mean, I've gotten over 300 VCs and, you know, a lot of them have very specific knowledge and expertise. Um, there are a bunch of blowhards and there are some arrogant folks, and I'm not a big fan of those, but, you know, there's some really high quality, hard working, smart folks out there. Scott tops the pile. Um, I have about 36 VCs as my LPs and some of them are just awesome. You know, people that started great funds. Erwin like Fetterman from USVP or John Jarvie from Menlo or Paul Holland at Foundation or, you know, Jacques Benkowski from USVP, Steve Krauss from USVP. These are great people. These are people that I call for advice, you know, as I'm going through the realities of learning about a fund. Um, I want to understand, like, you know, they've seen these movies before. Norm song who started IVP. Awesome. Awesome. Like, really, the first growth venture firm, as far as I can tell. The first, last round before the IPO guy until literally everybody else got in his game. But no, there's a lot of, uh, it's funny, VCs often think entrepreneurs are arrogant. And what I've discovered is that's almost never the truth. They're just sometimes putting on an armor to protect themselves because it's hard to raise money. And so they come off that way. But for the most part, as soon as they know you're an entrepreneur too, it all works out just fine. I've never had an issue with entrepreneurs. There are a handful of uh, really, really arrogant VCs, some of whom have done very well and are just two to five times prouder of their accomplishments than their accomplishments would, you know, represent. And uh, some of them are blowhards, and some of them are full of BS. But for the most part, you know, I'd say of the 300 plus VCs I know, I certainly like two thirds of them. So, <laughs> and the others, uh, you know, we say hi when we see each other, and we're not going to go get a beer, <laughs> but we're, we're going to be friendly. We're going to be acquaintances. Are you reading
0: anything right now?
1: Reading? Yeah. Are you reading anything right now? Oh, yeah. I. Uh, it's funny. I was just listening to Adam Grant's uh, originals. Okay. Um, and I, I live across the street from a library. So I'll go over there on most weekends and check out, you know, four to eight books. And, you know, usually hard science, science fiction, uh, data-driven stuff. But right now I've got like three new hard science, science fiction books I'm playing with. I usually bring them back and read a chapter or two of each and then decide which ones I'm gonna keep. So the original's stuck, I'm still going through that. Oh, I got a first edition of one of William Gibson's last books. I'm seeing if I'm gonna like that one. Uh, but you know, he's always been a challenge for me to read. Uh, I prefer Neil Stevenson significantly, although He did wander off into some non-sci-fi and that always bugged me because he's such a great sci-fi writer. Anyway, I like, you know, it's funny. Entrepreneurs will often ask me what they should read. and My answer is everything or nothing. The reality is you really don't have the time to do a lot of reading, unfortunately. But if you are going to read, be voracious and read as many different things as you can because, you know, it's like, where will you discover that next idea? Um, I love to read about cognitive bias. There was a book that was like a summary of all the different cognitive biases that had been unearthed and. like how you, if you think about what a venture capitalist job is, job one is to say no. (laughs) And then job two is to figure out when you can't say no. So that you have to say yes. And in order to get there, the process of making the right decision, as one of my partners once said to me, the outcome does not determine whether the decision was correct. You can make a huge mistake and underwrite the wrong person for the wrong reasons and still have them luck out. or you can be absolutely flawless in your thinking and still have the company fail. But you do have a duty to continually try to evolve your thinking and your decision making as best you can to improve the job that you are here to do. And uh, you know. And so that's a constant challenge. So anytime I can find a book that helps me with that, that's always useful.
0: Uh, my final question would be, uh, so I think you're 56 right now. So when do you plan to retire? And uh, also related to that, um, like when, when would you think like, you know, you've made it, like, do you have a point in your mind where, you know, if you probably accomplish that, you feel like you've made it or do you, I don't know.
1: That's fair. That's a good question. So, you know, I did retire once already when I took my public company private, I retired for, according to my wife, like six years. That didn't work out. It wasn't a fit for me at all. So it's unclear to me whether retiring is something I can do. Um, I don't play golf. I don't play tennis. I don't have hobbies. I really only care about my founders and my family. Nothing else is of interest to me. I don't care about any sport. Uh, I don't need to watch football on Monday nights or whenever it is people watch football. I don't need to like go cheer some World Cup team. So it's not clear to me that I will ever retire, although I assume my function will evolve and the form that I take to do so will evolve. But the way I think about this fund is that this is a 20 year commitment in that I will raise three funds. It will take me somewhere around 10 years to deploy them. And it'll take me another 10 years at the end of that period for the full harvest of the liquidity events that one needs for those funds to make sense. It's really probably gonna be eight years to deploy and 12 years to harvest. But so that's my sort of mental commitment to myself is this is a 20 year game. Now, at the end of that, it's not like, okay, I'm done. I'm gonna go live on an island. I don't think, you know, I really admire people like um, uh, Bill Draper, who after he ran a very successful career as a venture capitalist, started a fund that raised money from his LPs to do charitable investing with the rigor of a VC, where he gets involved, takes a board seat, helps build out team. That seems like a great way to go. I would love to be able to be philanthropic in my elder years. and when is enough enough? That's a really interesting question. My wife and I, so I'm a pretty frugal guy. And I was complaining bitterly one day when she made me pull over to fill up the car because we'd gone 20 miles and there'd been no gas. We are driving to LA or something. I was like, I really don't want to pull over. You know, it'll be cheaper if we wait. She's like, no, I, I, the light's red. We got to pull over. We pulled over. I filled up the car the very next station. Um, it was 40 cents a gallon cheaper. And it's an SUV. So it took me like 12 or 20 gallons. And I was like, I can't believe you made me pull over and spoke for about an hour. I'm, I'm unhappy. I'm complaining. And uh, it's a long drive, right? And she finally is like, when's it going to be enough? I'm like, what do you mean? So when will it be enough money that it won't matter to you that you just lost $5 filling up a gas tank one stop early? And I'm like, why would there ever be a number? Why would there ever be a number that's big enough where I would want to throw money in the garbage? I don't understand that. Like frugality is either with you or it's not. Uh, now, in fairness, I have a, a famous LP from a, a famous family anyway, who said to me one of his biggest learnings was be penny foolish and pound wise. And I'm trying to live to that a little bit better because I think it would make my life better if I was a little less concerned with the fact that I lost five bucks on a gas tank. Um, but, you know, it's sort of I was running the numbers on what a 10x fund would look like. And I was explaining it to my son and I was looking at what my participation would be. And I was like, well, what would I do with that much money? It does it's not clear to me what I would do with it. I'm very, I, we live, I mean, I have a nice house and I, you know, my family gets what they need, but we live a relatively simple life. We don't buy much stuff. I took an entire year off of buying anything once and I tend to not buy things. So I don't need fancy accoutrement. I don't take vacations. Um, so it's not like, you know, the money is sort of a scorecard and I, so what I, my desire is around achieving a certain level. I want to get that 10x fund out of fund one back to my LPs. Great. I'll be very well paid if I do that. But, you know, I'm not sitting here thinking about how do I earn X dollars? I'm thinking about how do I crush it on this fund? Or as people like to say, shoot the lights out. So, you know, and that gives me more flexibility in what I can do with my founders. And and then eventually I can become much more philanthropic, which I would like to do. So, but maybe I'll get to a point where it's like, "Eh, yeah, 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 I don't need any more. I mean, I already, I I did well. It's, It's not... You know, I'd like to live to 120 and never have to worry about ever having to worry about anything financially, but it's not like there's some burning. I don't need to be a billionaire. Uh, I mean, if you decided to make me one, if you just wanted to send me a check for a billion dollars, I'm not going to say no, but like, it's not, there are entrepreneurs I fund who I know until they're billionaires, it won't be enough. And great. Good for them. They have that drive. I probably had that drive when I was younger. Uh, I still have a lot of drive. I just no longer is attached to the material outcome of that drive. I just want to do what I do. I love what I do. I love, you know, there's nothing that makes me prouder than when one of my entrepreneurs succeeds. When Renault LaPlanche invited me to the IPO of, of Lending Club to go to the New York Stock Exchange, oh my God, I couldn't have been prouder. I just, I mean, like, just it was the biggest of the big. I was so excited for him and i was so proud to have been involved since the beginning. Like, that gets me jacked no matter and i don't think it will ever stop getting me jacked like it's just awesome 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 i live vicariously through my founders i was an entrepreneur the day i was born i'll be an entrepreneur the day i die but right now and for the foreseeable future i am an entrepreneur through the good graces of my entrepreneurs letting me help and that's that's a lot of fun well thanks for having me enjoy the time thank you thank you so much for
0: thank you so much for taking the time uh, i had a lot of fun and uh, wishing you all the best